Hey guys, welcome to another episode of True Crimes and Weird Times. I'm Kim. And I'm Ashley. And this week I'm going to be telling you the story of Mary Frances Stoner. She was a 12-year-old girl who was raped and murdered right in our own backyard in Adairsville, Georgia. And I will be sharing a collection of stories that will make you question whether or not you believe in reincarnation. Kim, do you believe in reincarnation? I don't know. Probably not, I guess. Well, either. I don't know. Hang on, wait till we're done. <laughs> As we all know, reincarnation is the belief that we don't truly die, but our soul or our essence or whatever we call it moves on to begin another life. Very poetic. It sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm into that. Some people believe we just do it over and over and over again forever and ever. Uh, some people believe that our good and bad karma determines our next life. That would not be good for me. I don't know. It might be. But like there's a lot more people now than there used to be. So are we just like, did I used to be a dinosaur? Is yes. that what the theory is? <gasps> yes. <laughs> In my past life, I was a velociraptor. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. I like it. Well, there's still some people that believe that we continue to be reborn until our soul learns an important life lesson that will help us move on to something bigger in the cosmos. Okay. Yeah. Either way, today I'm going to share with you some anecdotal stories of past lives in order from my least favorite to my most favorite, which isn't saying much because I like them all. Um, I also want to note that these stories involve children. You remember past lives? It's pretty common, as it said, that children around the ages of two to five or more likely to remember their past lives more vividly than adults. They'll have strange phobias or behaviors that are usually coupled with stories from a life before. And it's said that typically it fades around the age of five, six. So let's just jump right in. The first story is about a boy named Lee. I don't have the rest of his name. Just, just Lee. Lee. Just Lee. When Lee was about two and a half, he would mention his other mommy, and by three and a half, he was very frustrated because he couldn't go to his other house and get back to work. Hmm. Mm-hmm. He would often tell others that his middle name was Co. It wasn't. And that his birthday was June 26th. It wasn't. And that he had a daughter named Jennifer. He's three. <laughs> okay. Now, none of it was true. And he also developed an obsession with Hollywood and would tell others that that's where he lived. Where did he live? Um, It didn't really say, but was, it wasn't Hollywood. He was in America, though. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was around this time that his parents were beginning to wonder if Lee was perhaps talking about a past life. I mean, at first I would chalk it up to a kid just playing. But Imagination. Yeah. But it was starting to get a little creepy. Uh, they started asking him questions about Hollywood and what he did there. Did he make movies? Was he an actor? No, he replied. I write movies. So they began to name off movie titles. They finally got to Gone with the Wind. And he goes, yes, that's my movie. I wrote that movie. His sister then asked how old he was when he died. And Lee said 48. When his parents pulled the information up online, they were amazed at what they found. Sidney Coe Howard wrote the screenplay for Gone with the Wind. He died when he was 48. He had a daughter named Jennifer. And his birthday was June 26th. Yeah, right? Goosebumps. All right. Our next one is Arthur Flowerdew. 
Flower Dude? Flower Dude. Isn't that cool? That's a great name. I like it. He was an Englishman from Norfolk who, from his adolescence, experienced strange visions of a stone city carved into a cliff. He claimed these visions were particularly strong when he played with his multicolored pebbles on the beach near his home. The clarity of these visions grew as he got older. Then one day as an adult, he was watching a BBC documentary on the ancient city of Petra in Jordan. He immediately recognized it as the city from his visions. He was convinced that he lived a past life in Petra and contacted the BBC, which is great and all. But could you imagine calling the BBC and saying, hey, (laughs) I used to live there. Oh, hey, I used to live there. Oh, that's cool. No, 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 no. No, wait a minute. (laughs) You don't understand. The BBC actually filmed and broadcast a documentary on him, on his life, that caught the attention of the Jordanian government, and they offered to fly him to Petra to examine its remains and perhaps offer insights on analyzing the city. Flowerdew accepted the offer, but before he left for Jordan, he was interviewed by an archaeologist excavating Petra to test his knowledge of the city. Flowerdew described the city with accuracy and even pointed out three separate landmarks prominent in his memories. Upon his arrival to Petra, he went directly to these landmarks, including his purported place of murder, explained a very plausible use for a tool that baffled archaeologists, and even correctly identified the locations of other landmarks that had yet to be excavated. Many of the experts claimed that Flower Dew had more knowledge of the city than many professionals studying it, and they were almost certain he was no con man. Wow. Because I was about to say, like, couldn't he have just researched this really well? well? Now, he was born in 1906. Oh. Yeah. So there was no Google. Yeah, he couldn't have researched it that well. Yeah. I mean. There was no Google. (laughs) The next story is about a little boy named Ryan Hammond. By the time he was four, he was having very vivid nightmares that would wake him in the middle of the night. He claimed that it felt like his heart was exploding and it had gotten so bad that his family began to wonder if he was like possessed. Uh, Rather than sick. You know, naturally. Yeah. While children are often known for their imaginative play, Ron was often found pretending to direct pictures. But Ron began telling his mother about very specific details of being on a Hollywood movie set from the 40s, which was why he was always directing pictures in his room. They were motion pictures. Uh, He began speaking like he was in a 1940s film, and all I could picture was, yeah, see? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) He also talked about various memories using names of famous actors and actresses from the 40s that he had known. He claimed to have met Rita Hayworth and that she loved performing on Broadway and that she loved Coke floats. He never watched a Rita Hayworth film or even knew that she loved Coke floats. (laughs) Uh, He would then tell his mother about lavish Hollywood parties and who was at them and what types of food was there. And even told her about how he used to work at a company which helped various performers change their names. Like actors. He even began to ask for a true aid which was a drink that was popular in the 40s, but was discontinued way before this kid was born. He would tell stories about his travels with big stars in the 40s and say things like, I liked it better when I was big and I could go wherever and whenever I wanted to go. At five, Ron and his mother were watching television when the Hollywood sign appeared on the screen and he immediately began to cry and begging to be taken back. So people from Hollywood get reincarnated more often is what I'm gathering here. So far. (laughs) (laughs) His mother decided to let him flip through a book containing pictures from 1940s movies to see what would happen. Ron began to recognize people in the book and then suddenly stopped. He pointed to a black and white photo and said, that's George. We did a picture together. The man in the photo was an actor named George Raft. Then Ron pointed to another man in the photo and exclaimed, that's me, mama. 
After weeks of searching, his mother was able to find that the other man in the photo her son claimed to be was Marty Martin. He played as an extra in one movie, starring George Raft, and then became a Hollywood agent, which would explain the change in names. Right. She sought the help of Jim Tucker, who has worked with children with past life stories, to talk to Ryan about his past life. Tucker asked Ryan several questions that only the real Marty Martin would know, and Ryan provided 55 detailed facts about Martin's life. Tucker then did extensive research, including contacting Marty Martin's daughter to check the accuracy. It turned out that everything that Ryan told him was true, including that Martin died of a heart attack. Remember, he was having dreams about his heart exploding. Yeah. Ron told other details that were able to be verified, such as Martin driving a green Rolls Royce and how many children he had had. However, when Ron mentioned that Martin had two sisters, Martin's daughter said that that was incorrect. But upon closer inspection, it turned out that Martin did have a second sister that had been kept a secret. Oh, wow. Yeah. So even the daughter didn't know that fact. Ron. Another detail that Ron had got wrong was Martin's age of death. Ron said that Martin had died at 61, but his death certificate said 59. But when they were able to take a look at his birth certificate, they found that Martin actually had died at 61 years of age and not 59. And they got it wrong. Right. But he had the right age. That's crazy. Yeah. Next up is Sam Taylor. He was born a year and a half after his paternal grandfather died. And when Sam was only one and a half years old, his father was changing his diaper and Sam told him, when I was your age, I used to change your diapers. Following the incident, Sam began to say that he had been his own grandfather, as well as saying things like, I used to be big and now I'm small. Sam's mother began to ask him questions that only his grandfather would know. She asked what Sam's grandmother would make for his grandfather to drink when she was taking care of him before his death. Sam correctly said that she had made milkshakes and that she made them in a food processor instead of a blender. This isn't something he would have even seen his grandmother do as she had a series of strokes and wasn't doing stuff like that. So it's not something he could just guess because she does it all the time. Another time, Sam's mother asked him if he had any brothers or sisters when he lived before. He said, yeah, I had a sister. She turned into a fish. What? When his mom asked him who turned her into a fish, he said, some bad guys. She died. You know what? When we die, God lets us come back again. I used to be big and now I'm a kid again. Turns out the sister of Sam's grandfather had been killed some 60 years before. Her husband killed her while she was sleeping and dumped her body into a bay. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Which is super creepy that she turned into a fish. I know. I got chills from I that know. one. At other times, Sam correctly said that his grandfather's favorite place in the home was the garage where he worked on, quote, inventions, and that Sam's father has a small steering wheel of his own when they rode in the car. When Sam's father was a boy, he had a toy steering wheel that they put on the dashboard for him to drive with. Aww. Yeah. When Sam was four and a half, his grandmother died and his father flew out to her home to take care of her belongings and brought home with him a box of family pictures. Sam's parents didn't have any pictures of his family before then. And when his mother spread them out on the table one night, Sam came over and began pointing to the photos of his grandfather saying, that's me. He ran his finger over a grade school photo and correctly pointed out his grandfather as a kid. When he saw a snapshot that just showed a car without any people, he said, hey, that's my car. It was, in fact, his grandfather's first new car he ever purchased, a 1949 Pontiac that was very special to him. Sam's father says that his father didn't communicate very well about emotional issues with his sons, particularly when they were adults. Sam's father let his own father know how he felt about him, but his father had great difficulty reciprocating. He feels that if his father's come back through Sam, 
then his deceased father is reaching out to return his love. Oh, that's kind of sweet. I like that one. The next one is James Leninger, who was born in 1998. At the age of two, he began to have recurring nightmares where he would shout, airplane crash, plane on fire, little man can't get out. And would happen three to four times a week. Which I already feel bad because he's having an awful dream. Oh, It's so sad. I know. One time at a store display, his mother picked up a model propeller plane and told James, there's even a bomb at the bottom. To which he replied, that's not a bomb, mommy. That's a drop tank. His mother didn't even know what a drop tank was. I don't know what I a don't drop know tank what a drop is. Tank is. <laughs> Around the same time, the family went to Dallas and went to visit the display of planes of World War II, Korean, and Vietnam Wars. James shrieked as he saw an old F-105 Thunder Chief plane and was mesmerized and stayed in the museum for three hours. James refused to leave until he got to see the real planes take off. So far, just sounds like a kid with a plane fascination. Right, yeah. Like, my child is super into trains, so... Right. He'd probably know a lot more technical terms than I would, and he's only two. Right, uh, yeah. One day, when his mother was reading him a book, James laid down beside her and said, Mama, the little man's going like this and kicked his feet towards the ceiling and said, Oh, 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 can't get out. His mother said, Who's the little man? To which James said quietly, Me. He retold the story to his father and he asked James, Son, what happened to your plane? James replied, It crashed on fire. He asked, Why did your plane crash? It got shot. Who shot your plane? James replied, The Japanese! With disgust. When asked by his aunt the next day how he knew it was the Japanese, James replied, the Big Red Sun. Later, when James began to talk of the plane crash again, he stated that Little Man's name was also James. He was then asked by his father what kind of airplane the Little Man flew. A Corsair, James replied, without hesitation. He then asked where the plane took off from. A boat, he said. His father asked him, do you remember the name of your boat? And James replied, Natoma. That's a big (laughs) word for a kid. Right. His dad replied, that sounds pretty Japanese. And James replied, no, it's American. His father was, of course, stunned that his two-year-old knew the name of the plane that was used during World War II and that it was launched from an aircraft carrier. Later, when he Googled for Natoma, he found that there was indeed a Natoma Bay that was an aircraft carrier used in World War II. On another day, his father asked James whether he could remember any friend in his dream. Jack, he replied. While he couldn't remember his own last name in the dream, he could remember that Jack's family name was Larson and that he was also a pilot. One time when James and his father were looking at a book, they saw a photo of Iwo Jima. James exclaimed, Daddy, that's where my plane was shot down. His father checked to see whether the carrier Natoma had been to Iwo Jima. It had in 1945. Wow. When James was three, he began to draw. He would constantly draw about planes and battles. He named the planes of his drawings Wildcats and Corsairs. He called the Japanese planes Zeke's or Betty's. When they asked why these names, James said the boy planes were fighters and the girl planes were bombers. His father checked the internet, and again, James had been right, which is super weird. Eventually, James was interviewed by 2020, where he told the host about the Corsair that he flew. They used to get flat tires all the time, and they always wanted to turn left when they took off, he said. That was correct. As they were filming James looking at a real Corsair, James pointed to the tail hook that showed that it was a naval plane, because only naval planes needed a tail hook to grab the arresting wire when landing on carriers. And once again, that was right. His parents pursued their research into who their son might be, and after a long period of contacting veterans of the carrier Natoma Bay, they finally found that the pilot's name was James Little Man Hutton. Little Man. Little Man. 
One day, while raking leaves together, James' father told him how happy he was to have him as a son. James replied, that's why I picked you. I know you'd be a good daddy. He continued, when I found you and mommy, I knew you'd be good to me. His father asked, where did you find us? James replied, Hawaii. I found you at the Big Pink Hotel. I found you on the beach. You were eating dinner one night. His father was dumbfounded because in 1977, James's parents were indeed in Hawaii and stayed in the Royal Hawaii, which was a pink hotel in Waikiki Beach. On the last evening, they had a moonlight dinner in the be- at the beach. On the last evening, they had a moonlight dinner at the beach. And five weeks later, they became pregnant with James. Ooh. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> the next one is a story about the Pollock sisters. Joanna Pollock was born in 1946, and her sister Jacqueline was born in 1951, and they were inseparable. Joanna liked to mother Jacqueline. Who let her? Joanna loved dress up. She was generous and enjoyed sharing with other children. She often told her parents, as if it were a premonition, that she would never grow up or never be a lady. Her sister Jacqueline loved to comb others' hair, especially her father's. At age three, she fell into a bucket that caused a small gash over her right eye, and she also had a dark, round birthmark on the left side of her waist. On the morning of May 7th, 1957, Joanna and Jacqueline were walking to church when they were struck by a car and killed instantly. Their parents were clearly devastated, and while their mother, Florence, tried avoiding thinking about the girls, their father, John, preferred to always think about them. He claims to have experienced a vision of the girls in heaven on the day of the accident, and he sensed a presence of the girls' spirits in the top room of the house, where he often spent time there to feel close to them. John felt that his daughter's deaths were punishment from God for praying for proof of reincarnation, but felt that his prayers were going to be answered in the way of his daughters being reborn into the family. Florence fully objected to this notion, and their disagreement on the matter almost ended their marriage. However, soon after, Florence became pregnant again, and John was convinced that it was Joanna and Jacqueline come back to be born as twins. Florence rejected it, and also her doctor predicted only a single birth based on the palpitation and fetal heartbeat. There was also no history of twins being born on either side of the family. However, Florence gave birth to two healthy baby girls on October 4th, 1958, and they were named Jillian and Jennifer. They had found that Jennifer, oddly enough, had a birthmark in the same place and shape as Jacqueline's scar on her head. Mm. And a second birthmark in the same place as Jacqueline's had been on her waist. Of course, they probably didn't think much of it, except that it was strange. But only a few years later, they began to notice even more strange things about their girls. When the twins were about three, their parents brought down toys that belonged to Joanna and Jacqueline from the attic. Jillian had claimed a doll that had been Joanna's, and Jennifer claimed the doll that it had been Jacqueline's. The girls both claimed that the dolls had been gifts from Santa, which they had been Christmas gifts to their previous daughters. When Jillian saw an old toy clothes ringer, which I'm not sure what that is. I don't know. It makes me think of like some kind of, like it rings out your clothes. I'm thinking one of those things you send the laundry through and you crank it. That's what I picture, like a little kid house toy. Yeah. Okay, maybe. She immediately said, there's my toy ringer, and also stated that it had been a gift from Santa, which again was a Christmas present. Jillian and Jennifer did not seem to fight over the toys, as young kids might normally do, as if they were their toys and they knew it. Mm -hmm. Florence often heard Jillian and Jennifer discussing details of the car accident. She even once came across Jillian cradling Jennifer's head and saying, the blood's coming out of your eyes. That's where the car hit you. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, The father recalled that when he identified the bodies that Jacqueline's head was actually bandaged above her eyes. 
John also said that when the girls discussed the accident to themselves, they would often talk about it in present tense, much like they were reliving it. Jillian once pointed to Jennifer's head and said, that's the mark Jennifer got when she fell on a bucket. Florence also wore a smock at her job delivering milk, but had put it away after Joanne and Jacqueline's deaths. One day, John had worn the smock while painting, and Jennifer wanted to know why he was wearing Mummy's coat. When John asked her how she knew the smock was Mummy's, Jennifer said that her mother wore it while delivering milk. Now, from the way I read it, she wasn't delivering milk anymore. So it was an old thing she would have never seen her mom wear. The Pollock family had moved away from Hexham, a town that they had lived in, when Jillian and Jennifer were only nine months old. So they didn't know anything about the town. They were just babies. Yeah. But that had been where uh, Joanna and Jacqueline had lived as children. When they visited again to see family, when Jillian and Jennifer were four, the girls seemed to know much about the town, including the parks they played at and the school they went to, the older girls. When the girls complained about the lunch they were having at home, Florence told them that they could eat at school, to which they replied, we've already done that before. Jillian and Jennifer had not done that before, but Joanna and Jacqueline had. The girls also showed behaviors that were eerily similar to their elder sisters. Like the older sisters, Jillian and Jennifer were very close. Jillian often mothered Jennifer. Jennifer accepted, much like their sisters. Also, they liked to comb people's hair, especially their fathers. Jillian was more sociable and generous with others, liked to share, and generally seemed more mature than her twin sister. Joanna had been older. Hmm. She also enjoyed dress up and acting, much like Johanna had. I mean, those are also kind of just normal kid things. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Uh, The twins did have phobias related to cars. They would always carefully cross the street holding hands. And on one occasion, when a car engine started in an alleyway nearby, the girls were seen terrified and clinging to each other, screaming, the car, the car, it's coming for us. But I mean, couldn't they have picked up on like their parents' fear? See, that's the people who tried to debunk it. That's been part of it. Mm -hmm. But Florence was so against it. I don't see her talking that much about it. Maybe not. Yeah, but I guess if the father had been so set on this reincarnation thing, it's possible he was feeding them information. Well, hang on. Okay. Because I do have something to that, if it's true. We'll see. Uh, They also had very striking physical similarities to their sisters. Jillian had a slender build, which was much like Joanna, and Jennifer had a stocky build that was much like Jacqueline's. It also showed in their walking gait, which was very similar to the older sisters. Of course, the birthmarks, again. Uh, since Jillian and Jennifer were monozygotic twins, which mean it means that they were identical twins that were in the same egg. That it split. The egg split into two. Is that how that works? Yeah. Thank you, science. <laughs> there was no genetic explanation for the birthmarks was the point <laughs> gotcha yeah and no one else in the family had similar birthmarks either so it was odd that she even had the birthmarks hmm uh actually it mentioned that the scar on the older sister's head mm-hmm. it was a bit depressed like you could see it a little bit on her head and in the cold it was more visible and they said that the birthmark where the scar sat was actually more visible in the cold. And when she was born, it was a a bit depressed in her forehead. Weird. Yeah, that is really weird. As the twins grew older, they forgot about their past life memories, which is often the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their father didn't tell them anything about the girls 
actions and their memories. And he didn't tell them his belief about reincarnation until they were 13. So it makes it sound like he didn't want to put that on them. It still doesn't mean. Yeah, I mean, he could always just say yeah, he didn't they could tell have been, about it. And they could have picked up on family talking about it. Right. And I mean, um, as far as looking similar and walking some, I mean, they were sisters. Yeah. Not, a, o- not only that, I mean, I know it sounds weird, but like, I have two kids. Mm-hmm. It's very clear how different they are. But if I compare it to me and my brother when we were kids... I could find a ton of similarities. Right. I mean, if you're looking for them, you're going right. to find Right, if you're looking things. for them. Yeah. And that's part of the argument, too. Mm-hmm. What if they're just looking for it? Yeah. They went on to lead normal lives, knowing that their parents believed that they were their elder sisters reincarnated. They accepted their belief, but were skeptics about it. Understandably. So they're like, you know, mom and dad believe it. We kind of... Eh. We think it's weird. Yeah. Ugh, mom. <laughs> Then, in 1981, Jillian experienced, quote, inner visions in which she saw herself playing in a sandpit with her brothers. She perfectly described the house, garden, lawns, and orchards that matched a house the family had lived in in Wickham when Joanna had been younger than four. Jillian had never been to Wickham. And my favorite. I hope you love this one. This one is about Shanti Devi. She was born in Delhi, India in December of 1926. And by the time she was four years old, she was quiet and reserved. When her parents tried to open her up, she told them that she had lived before and she just wanted to see her husband and child. Her parents thought at first that this was just her imagination until she began to plead to them to take her to Mathura? Mathura? I'm not sure the pronunciation. But it's only about a three-hour drive south of Delhi. So it wasn't very far. She opposed to her parents calling her Shanti. She wanted to be called Shabin, which is what she said her name was. She claimed her husband owned a cloth shop that was located in front of Dwarkadish Temple. Again, sorry for the pronunciation. And that he was fair, had a big wart on his left cheek, and wore reading glasses. She also began narrating things that happened in her past life. Sometimes during meals, she would say, In my house in Mathura, I ate different kinds of sweets. And sometimes when her mother dressed her, she would begin to tell her about all the types of dresses she used to wear. Again, I could see that as a kid, just, you know, making stuff up, pretending. Yeah, pretending. By the age of six, Shanti had started telling her parents things that began to scare them. She told them how she had died in her past life giving birth. She began to plead and beg again to be taken to see her family in Mathura. She had never mentioned the name of her husband and would feel shy if anyone asked for his name. A family member finally offered to take her to Mathura if she would tell him the name. And, of course, she was lured by the offer and finally whispered the name to him. Wasn't it, like, disrespectful to say your husband's name or something like that? I I don't know. I think that's that's why she wouldn't tell him the name, but I'd have to That makes sense. I didn't know that. And here's the name. Get ready, because it's probably wrong. Pandit Kadarnath Chaub. They then wrote a letter to Kadarnath, telling him the story of Shanti and asked him to visit Delhi. Kadarnath felt that the stories were true, but he decided to let one of his relatives go in his place to meet Shanti first. When they met Shanti, she recognized him as her husband's cousin. He, of course, tested her, asking many questions, and Shanti answered them correctly, telling him that there was a well near her house where she had hidden money, the exact location of her house, 
The cousin was impressed and requested Kadarnath visit immediately. He finally visited with his son and present wife. To mislead Shanti, Kadarnath claimed to be his brother, which made Shanti blush. When asked why she was blushing, she said, no, he's not my husband's brother. He's my husband himself. Then she told her mother, didn't I tell you he was fair and had a wart on the left side of his cheek? (laughs) (laughs) Shanti asked her mother to prepare dinner for everyone. And while her mother went to the kitchen, Shanti insisted she prepare aloo parathas and pumpkin squash, saying it was her husband's favorite. Kadarnath was in awe listening to Shanti talk. She hugged her son and tears came to her eyes. And when Kadarnath asked how she knew it was her son, she replied without hesitation, Children are part of the soul of a mother, and wouldn't the soul recognize its children? Oh. I know. (laughs) Think about it. She's, what, six? Yeah, that's (laughs) deep for a kid. When Kadarnath left to go back to Mithorit, Shanti begged and pleaded to go back with them. When the story began to gain publicity, she was able to visit Mithora while a committee studied her. They wrote that as the train reached Mithora, Shanti became flushed with joy and remarked that the doors of the temple would be closed by the time they reached them. Something that she wouldn't know unless she lived there. And she remarked of it in a dialect often used in Mithora. While on the way to her home, she described the ways the town had changed, which was proved to be true. And as she approached the house, she recognized her father-in-law, went inside, identified her room and several belongings, and a place she stored her money. She was later taken to her parents' home, where she first recognized her aunt as her mother, but then corrected herself and recognized her mother and sat in her lap. Shanti met her family, and they had an emotional reunion. After her trip to Mathura, the committee had declared that this was, in fact, the reincarnation of Kadarna's wife, Lugdi Devi. The committee had spoken to her husband's family in secret to find what had happened to Lugdi. Lugdi had been born in January of 1902 and was married to Kadarnath when she was only 10 years old. She had become pregnant at a very young age and had to undergo a C-section as her child had not developed completely. But only nine days later, she developed complications and died. How well, young? How young are we talking here? Hmm. It didn't say. what I, The article I read didn't say how young she was when she had it. But if she was married at 10, yeah. it couldn't be. 12, 13. Maybe, yeah. Oh, man. Which would explain why the child probably didn't develop completely either. Right. That's insane. Yeah. One year, 10 months, and seven days later... After Lugdi's death, Shanti Devi was born. Wow. So, Kim, do you believe reincarnation is real? (laughs) Man, those are some pretty crazy stories. How wild is that? My story today was not a very well-covered story. There's not a lot of information out there about it. So it's going to be kind of short But I'm going to tell you everything that I was able to find out about it. Also, just a brief disclaimer, this episode is a little bit more graphic. It involves crimes against children. So I'm not going to go into the gory details, but I am going to go over some of the facts that are important to the case. On Friday, November 30th, 1979, Mary Frances Stoner left for school just like any other day. She was a beautiful girl, 12 years old. She had her whole life ahead of her. She lived in Bartow County, Georgia with her parents, Mary and Roy Stoner, and attended Adairsville High School. On this particular day, she got off the bus around 4 p.m., just like normal, except several students on the bus noticed a dark-colored Ford Pinto with mag wheels near Mary Frances's driveway. 
Inside the car was a white male with long hair and a beard. A student who had been sitting with Mary Frances was dropped off at the next stop about 50 yards down the street. She noticed the same car backing out of Mary Frances' driveway, except now there were two people in the car. Mm. Mary's family immediately reported her missing because, you know, she came home, she got off the school bus, but she never came in the house. Oh, so they were in the house. Either they were in the house or she wasn't home when they got home. Okay. But early the next morning, some hunters came across the body of a young girl laying face down in a wooded area near the Floyd-Bartow County line. It was Mary Frances. Her head had been crushed, and there were several blood-stained rocks laying nearby her body. Her autopsy revealed that she had been sexually assaulted, and the cause of death was asphyxiation by choking and severe brain injury. So both. Both. Yeah, it was a combination of the two from what I could understand. Police immediately zero in on a suspect. His name was Daryl Jean Devier. And Devier had been arrested earlier that year in June for the assault of another 13-year-old girl, but was released due to insufficient evidence. Mm -mm. So this guy is already cocky because he's gotten away with this and now he thinks he's just untouchable. Gross. Devier was known around town for driving a black Ford Pinto with mag wheels Hmm. and witnesses actually had placed Devier's car at a service station just about 150 yards up the road from Mary Frances' home at about 345 that afternoon. He sounds pretty good for it then. Yeah and you know she got off the bus at 4. He was right there. Also, Devier worked for a tree cutting service, and for two weeks prior to the murder, he had actually been working near Barry's home. So he would see her get off the bus every day, mm-hmm. and he actually made comments to his coworkers about how he wanted to have sex with her and about how good looking she was. That's so disgusting. I know. I I just this guy. That's pretty ballsy too. Right, to just tell your coworkers, hey, look at that hot twelve year old. Yeah. That's gross yeah so like i said he was cocky he he thought he was untouchable so he's denying any involvement he does take a polygraph but it comes back inconclusive this is when police call in john douglas yeah yeah now if that name sounds familiar to you it is because this is the man that the character holden ford is based off of in the netflix show mind hunter in fact they include this very interrogation in the season finale of season one. They do a reenactment of the interrogation of Daryl Devier. They change his name, yeah. obviously. But they use the same tactics and everything. I definitely recommend at least watching that episode after you listen to this because it's uh, really cool to see how they crack this guy. I'm going to have to go back and watch it. I didn't realize it was based off that. Oh, yeah. So, so Douglas uses an interrogation technique called staging on Devier. This technique zeroes in on the suspect's weakness while augmenting the investigator's perceived knowledge of the crime. Mm -hmm. And this is actually the first time that Douglas uses this technique on a potential suspect. Okay. Now, one of the key factors of this interrogation was the bloody rock from the crime scene. They actually place it in the interrogation room with Devier and they watch his reaction to it. The idea was that an innocent man is not going to know what this is. It's just a rock. Exactly. A rock. But if he's guilty, he's going to know what it is. It's going to make him nervous. He's going to keep looking at it, Mm -hmm. and it's going to make him sweat. Yep. 
Some other things they do are bring in some fake files that they fill up really <laughs> thick with a bunch of just blank papers yeah. to make it look like they have all this information on him. They also talk a lot about blood spatter, how it would be all over him after doing this crime and watch his reaction to that, which was not a great one. The next thing they do, along with the rock, which he's looking at it pretty often. They keep an eye on him and watch him checking out that rock the whole time. He's not doing himself any favors. <laughs> Absolutely not. And eventually they actually put the rock on the table in front of him. Oh, so wow. he has to stare at it. Yeah. Then they begin shifting the blame to the victim. Now that sounds crazy, but they do this because it gives him a chance to save face. Right. And someone who's guilty is going to listen to this victim blaming. Kind of. Right. Kind of like, oh, yeah, you're right. It was her fault. I didn't actually have any control in the situation. She did it to me because they're looking for a way to put blame on someone else. Right. Whereas an innocent person is going to yell and scream and be outraged that you would blame a 12 year old girl for this. So officers tell Devier that they they know he's guilty. They know that he raped her. But they think that's where his plan stopped. They say, she seduced you. Mm-hmm. She was just flaunting herself. It's not your fault. But clearly you didn't mean to murder her. You didn't plan to murder her because you would have brought an actual murder weapon, not just using a rock. I mean, that's... <laughs> Either you're bad at planning or this just wasn't your fault, man. It just was not. And he just falls for it all the way. He immediately confesses, agrees with everything they're saying, and they got him. Cracked like an egg. What happened the day of the kidnapping was this. The crew finished up early that day, uh, about noonish, so they were all allowed to leave. Devier sees this as his opportunity. He parks at that service station up the road from Mary Frances's house and waits for her to get off the bus. He then pulls up and asks Mary for directions. When she gets into the passenger seat to look at his map, which is just a piece of paper from his glove box, he grabs her and he drives away. He takes her to that isolated wooded area where the hunters found her body and forces her into the back seat where he rapes her. After the assault, Devier lets her out of the car and has her get dressed. According to his confession, he had planned to tie her to a tree, but she started yelling and she hit him in the chest and she's fighting back. And this is not what he thought was going to happen when he planned this out, apparently. So he pushed her down and he starts choking her. But apparently he either wasn't strong enough to kill her by choking her or it was just taking too long. So he grabbed a rock and used it to crush her skull. Jeez. Now, Devier actually goes to trial three different times for this case. The first resulted in a mistrial after the juror had been caught discussing the case with a deputy who was a prosecution witness. Wow. Why do you do that? I know. It just, this, is a, this is a big deal. You don't just go around chit-chatting yeah, about your you case. You know the rules. You don't do that. Yeah. But they did. The second trial comes back with a guilty verdict and the death penalty. But this decision is overturned by appeal by the U.S. Supreme Court when they determined that the jury was not a balanced selection of citizens from Floyd County, which could lead to a bias. What? 
I don't know if he claimed there were too many women, there were too many white people, there <laughs> were too many old people. Was it too many, not enough people from Floyd County? I don't, I don't, I don't. That's so weird. But they agreed with him on that appeal and they Boy. have a third trial. And in November of 1983, Devier is again found guilty and sentenced to death. Thank God. Now he files tons of appeals over the following years, but on May 17th, 1995, Daryl Jean Devier was executed via the electric chair. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure I read that he was like the 20th person in Georgia to <laughs> ever be executed via electric chair. That's way less than I thought. And he actually never apologizes, never shows any remorse for what he's done well, the whole time. Not. Mary Frances's mother spent years making daily visits to her daughter's grave at the top of the hill behind her house. She also attended what should have been Mary Frances's graduation at Adairsville High School. Oh. She and Mary Frances's father said that the execution did nothing to ease their grief. And that Devier remained a presence in their daily lives just as much as the ghost of their eighth grade daughter. I'm sure. It's awful. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram at True Crimes Weird Times and Twitter at TCWT Podcast. Like us on Facebook at True Crimes and Weird Times Podcast. Email us story suggestions or share your personal true crime slash weird time stories at truecrimesweirdtimes at gmail.com. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us an iTunes review. Reviews are a free way to support the show and help us gain new followers. We'll see you next week. Bye.